case from the Blue Cliff record. <coughs> Chin Shan's one arrow point smashes three barriers. The pointer. The Buddhas never appeared in the world. There is nothing to be given to people. The patriarch never came from the West. He never passed that on that transmission. Since people of these times do not understand, they frantically search outside themselves. They are far from knowing that the one great matter right where they are cannot be grasped even by a thousand sages. Right now, where are you seeing and not seeing? Hearing and not hearing, speaking and not speaking, knowing and not knowing, come from. If you are unable to apprehend clearly, then try to understand inside the cave of entangling vines. To test, I cite this. Look. The case. Zen traveler Liang asked, Chin Shan, how is it when a single arrowhead smashes three barriers? Shan said, bring out the load within the barriers for me to see. Liang said, so then not knowing my fault, I must change. Shan said, why wait any longer? Liang said, a well-shot arrow doesn't hit anywhere. And then he started to leave. Shan said, come here for a minute. Liang turned his head. Shan held him tight and said, leaving aside for the moment a single arrowhead smashing three barriers, let's see how you shoot an arrow right now. Liang hesitated. So Shan hit him seven times and said, otherwise this fellow will be doubting for 30 more years. The verse. I bring out the Lord within the barriers for you. You disciples who would shoot an arrow, don't be careless. Take an eye and ears go deaf. Let go of the ear and the eyes go blind. I can admire a single arrow point smashing three barriers. The trail of arrow is Truly clear. You don't see? Zwansha had words for this. A great adept is the primordial ancestor of mind. So a couple of weeks ago I listened to an interview on the radio with uh, some guy who apparently is a famous producer of reality TV shows. And uh, during the interview, at some point, the interviewer asked him, what is the most ingredient of a successful show? What makes a show, reality show, uh, successful? And the guy said, without hesitation, said, Drama and conflict. 
which of course we the consumers perceive as exciting, juicy, interesting. And essentially it leads to a higher number of viewers. And to make his point, to make it more relevant to us, he explained further and he referred to the time, the example of comparing the way our current president communicates and acts versus the way our previous president did. And he said that the, the, the style of the current president is by design bombastic, provoking, laced with personal attacks, name callings, and full of unverifiable statements by design, he said. In other words, what he was saying is it creates drama, conflict, and buzz. It creates something that somehow we are addicted to. And on the other hand, he said uh, the previous president communicated in a much more, in a deeper way, thoughtful, factual way. And he said, which often can be appeared and have appeared as boring, dry, not exciting. And the point of what he was saying was not to make any uh, political statement, but just to identify and expose what attracts us as consumers of entertainment, which is what it is, entertainment for us. And, and this brings up a much broader, deeper issue of the way we function in our society as human beings, and what we, what we gravitate towards and what we reject, what we find exciting and what we find boring. And of course, the kind of energies we, we feed or we feed off when we obey unwholesome streams in us. And we consume unwholesome energies. And the difference with that and consuming wholesome energies, obeying wholesome impulses in us. And since we reside and function within this kind of sociological environment and culture, we don't have it, often have much choice over what is being fed to us. But we do have a choice of uh, regards to what we choose to consume, how we choose to interact with what we're exposed to, or what is being fed to us, potentially. We have a choice over how we meet what is being offered to us. And it's being offered in that way because it is by design there in that way to entice us, to make us hate, to make us create drama. Otherwise, otherwise he wouldn't do it, him, the current president. He may not be good at many things, but the one thing he's very good at is selling. He knows how to sell. He's a master in that. And we know how to buy. And that goes beyond 
politics, obviously. And actually, it goes to the root of our practice. Who is buying? Why are we buying? What are we feeding when we buy this kind of energy, impulses? And I'm not interested in reality TV at all. It's just that it was a very interesting interview because it's not really the reality TV that matters. It's just that it has become such a big aspect of huge money-making industry of realizing, well, that's what people like, so why not give them what they like? Why, why not tell them, here's what you love, and we got a lot of it, and we know exactly how to entice you. So what, what, as a practitioner, what can we learn from this? What do we do when Mother shows up and says, why don't you try this? Taste this for a while. Mara is a little bit like a pusher. Got the right drugs. Knows exactly how to knock on the door. Exactly how to show up. Exactly how to dress up. What kind of a hat to put on. What kind of a jacket to put on. What kind of shoes we like, how shiny to be. So Mala shows up and we see the glamour and we go for it, like a moth to the light. We keep burning, we don't learn. So when Mala shows up, we have to remember, I know you. I've seen you before. You may look different today, but you're not. I know exactly who you are. And I'm not going to go for that. You can try as hard as you want. I know what I'm practicing. Because I'm practicing it daily. Because I'm clarifying daily. And daily you come, show up, and try to pull these magic tricks. But I know what I practice. I know the master. I am the master. Mara is not an enemy. It's just different streams in us. So when we say, I know you, it means I'm not afraid of you. And I'm not surprised that you showed up, that you keep showing up. So we all have tendencies to, to, to gravitate towards immediate gratification, to blindly follow our senses, to favor the easy, and just slack off. That's exactly how Mara shows up. And then the practice says quite the opposite of that. It says, sit down, get quiet, don't move an inch. 
the practice is teaching us to how to meet Mara. It's teaching us that it happens, so we shouldn't be surprised. And at the same time, it's also teaching us how to encounter, how to stay stable while the wind is blowing. by moving with the wind, that is. So it's telling us to not move. It's telling us to observe from an unfamiliar and an unconventional place that which is familiar and that which is conventional. And then, we mobilize from there. We move from that place into everyday functioning. And it's also asking us to pay close attention to what may at first be boring, seem boring, not interesting. It's teaching us how to bring up wholesome while we may want to bring up the unwholesome. Because the unwholesome is often a lot more interesting, a lot more juicy, a lot more exciting. People love to see that. It's, it's, it's incredible how drawn we are to drama, to conflict, to fighting, to blood. We say we don't like it, but our actions are showing us otherwise. And we have to maybe first admit that. When things appear to be juicy and interesting, they're often designed to appeal to the most shallow and most mediocre sides of humanity. It's one of the most effective ways to move the masses, right? To appeal to the lowest common denominator. But there is a different kind of denominator, which often may seem hidden, not immediately accessed. It's there. It's there if we get quiet. And we do, we get quiet, we go deep, we recognize there is a different kind of common denominator. And I would like to listen to that and obey that. And to go deep and to break through takes time, sustained effort, patience. as it is with the development of samadhi in zazen, a deep level of concentration, learning to work with the precepts, furthering the understanding of correct practice, and of course, koan study. Koan study. You know, every time I, I choose a koan to, to bring up, to 
for the day show. Every time. I go back to studying the koan. I go back to reading everything I can, everything there is about that koan, everything I have anyway, about that. And I sit with it. Never mind that those koans I've done in the past and I've worked on and passed and whatever that means. Still, I look at it as if I'm looking at it for the first time. And I'm studying it. And it takes time. It takes time because without that, it's not alive. It doesn't come to life. It becomes something that has been chewed before and then just keep chewing it over and over again, but it has no flavor. And it's incredible how much more you see, how much further you go when you study something you've studied before, you study it again. You change, we all change, things change all the time, and our ability to see further deepens, changes. So with that, I find that I'm able to see different shadows, different colors, different shades. And of course, what's relevant in this car? Many ways to speak of the car. There are many ways to express and experience the car. And we go with the relevant everything else is meaningless. So we need to examine, the point I'm trying to make with this is we need to examine the way we are dealing with practice. Are we practicing 24-7? Is our life really our practice? Do we take the time? Do we go deep? Or do we obey other impulses that say, this is boring, do something interesting, do something fun. This is not fun. It's too deep, it's too heavy. I want to do something light today. We say that, you know, sometimes vocally, sometimes not so vocally, but we feel that way. I need to kick back, relax. And by all means, sometimes we need to kick back and relax. But when we kick back and relax, are we not practicing? While kicking back and relaxing, again, ask the question, what am I feeding? What impulses am I obeying? Because if I kick back and relax and watch a reality show, what is it feeding? Or if I read the news and start to experience deep sense of hatred, what am I feeding? That's not really relaxing, is it? But we feel entertained. This is the sad part of reading the news these days. We are entertained. We're not learning about what's going on. We're being entertained. 
we have a White House that is reality TV. That's all it is. It's a reality, big reality show that has consequences that will affect the entire world. We laugh about it, or we cry about it, or we get upset about it, or whatever. This is serious. We have become reality show. The pointer of today's koan begins by saying that the Buddhas never appeared in the world. Nothing was taught, and Bodhidharma never passed on any transmission. So right from the beginning, he's telling us, he's telling you, that if you want to penetrate deeply, you need to stop looking elsewhere. You need to do it right here, right now, and at all times, because nothing else will ever happen. Nothing will appear, nothing will show up, because the Buddhas never showed up. They never appeared in the world, whoever we think they are. Which means nothing else will appear in the world. Nothing that is not already appearing. So we need to stop looking elsewhere, we need to go deep, and as, as Dogen said, we need to take the backward step that shines and illuminates the souls. We take the backward steps. step. And then it says, since people of these times, us here, do not understand, they frantically, we frantically search outside ourselves. We are far away from knowing that the one great matter, great matter, right where we are, cannot be grasped even by a thousand sages. So we read this. We're encouraged. We commit to the practice. Then we slack off. Then we recommit. We jump around from one tradition to another maybe. Go between being disciplined to not being disciplined. Have courage, lose the courage. And then to give rise to old habits and fears and feed them. And the pointer says, all this is happening while we are treading the very path we long for. We get discouraged because we don't we feel like we're not getting anywhere, but we are not getting anywhere because we are already there. So he's asking us right now, what do you see? What word do seeing and not seeing come from? Hearing and not hearing. Speaking and not speaking. Knowing and not knowing. Where does it all come from? We think we don't know. Where does this come from? We think we do know. Where does that come from? And it says if you're unable to apprehend clearly, then try to understand inside the cave of entangling vines. 
we are in the cave of entangling vines, if you haven't noticed. And we encounter that goes through our six senses. The vines are entangling, but do we have to be entangled? In Rinzai said that the six rays never cease to shine, to emit the great light. The six rays, ear, eye, nose, tongue, body, mind. The gateways to freedom and to entanglements. Our six senses. Mind is, the, is considered as a sixth sense, as a sense organ, meaning the brain. They're always on, they're always working, all those senses. And the thinking mind is always immersed in an automatic process of creating associations, categories, comparisons, judgments. And, of course, a course of action that is based on these interpretations. But what happens to this automatic process when we arouse curiosity and great doubt? When we doubt that we actually see what we think we see, smell what we think we smell. What happens when we don't jump into conclusion about what is being seen, what is being heard, what we smell, what we sense, what we taste, or what we think? What do you hear when you listen to my voice? What do I see when I look at you? Can we be certain about that? Or we act as if we are. So the pointer is asking us first to admit we are holding on to some basic fundamental assumptions about our reality. I know what I see. I know. I heard them say this. Of course. And from that we go on create chaos not verifying. Do I know? Really? So we begin by admitting that we are quite convinced that what we see, hear, and think is true and correct interpretation of reality. And then he's asking us to go further and to deeply examine us, our assumptions. In other words, it's asking us to abandon the, our idea of solid ground, which we have become conditioned to rely on. And then to step into uncharted territories of not knowing, not believing what I think, not believing what I see, hear, smell, touch. What do we believe? How do we function? Does this lead to chaos? Check it out. Assumptions are dangerous. Very dangerous. It's reminding me of a, my <coughs> 1967, my uncle 
uh, was in the Six Day War in Israel, and he was uh, he was uh, operating a tank, and uh, they were on the battle to uh, recap to take off to take on uh, Jerusalem, and. Uh, so he was in a tank, and the tank was going up the mountain, and uh, he did not know, his tank, the people, his crew did not know that that mountain was already taken by Israelis. And the tank has a little to identify that it is, uh, which country it belongs to, which army it's a part of, there is a little flag on top. Now when a tank goes up a mountain, First, it comes up, and if you're on the mountain already, you see the bottom of the tank. You don't see the top. And then it comes up, and then it's straightened up, and you see the top after it already comes up to the top of the hill of the mountain. And uh, the, the Israelis, the soldiers, were already there with the tank. So, uh, the tank that my cousin was in, my uncle was in, sorry. And uh, first, they saw the bottom, the, the, the bottom of it. And as soon as they saw that, they thought, this is the enemy. They shot it. After they shot it, it actually straightened up and they saw the flag. It was too late. Everybody was killed in it, including my uncle. But that was an assumption. And you can say, well, you know, how could they know? Because once the tank straightened up, the tank may actually shoot at them, which may be true. But it is an assumption. An assumption can create fear. And fear makes us pull the trigger. And people die. And we create a lot of suffering. Because we assume. Because we are certain that what we see is what's going on. Can we admit that our senses are always limited? Always. Can we admit that to rely solely on our six senses is not an accurate way to perceive reality? Because if we don't, well, first of all, we're not practicing correctly. But if we don't, we are doomed because we are always going to create suffering for ourselves and others. Because we predicate our lives based on inaccurate measurement tools. And what happens when we don't have a tool that can measure correctly? We come up with measurements that are not reflecting reality as it is. But what does it mean on a personal level? How do we practice that? When we feel sad, lonely, fearful, insecure, we need to ask, where do these emotions come from? Do we know? I trust that emotion to reflect reality, but where does it show up from? Where does the emotion reside? 
you put the finger on exact location of what you say you are experiencing. I know I am feeling this way. I'm, I'm sad. I'm upset. I'm pissed off. Maybe. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be upset? What does it mean to feel insecure? What does it really mean? What does it mean to feel secure? Can we locate the exact spot of what we predicate our lives on? Because we make some pretty serious decisions based on those feelings. Decisions that are responsible for life and death. Responsible for the future we create. And we do it so automatically. Or in the case of a memory, for example, a past event. Well, the event we know is long gone, but then there is the memory. Well, where is that? Where is the memory located? We call it the memory. What is it? I don't know. Do you know? Does it have an outline, a substance? So we need to take the time to examine. Take the time, be patient, work with things, go deep. Like everything we talk about in practice. We need to realize, and we do realize, that all this is actually not more than a passing cloud in the sky. It's really not more than that. It seems very threatening, especially when it's dull. But it passes on, like everything. Maybe the challenge is while it's not passing yet to create the least amount of damage. Because after it passes, we have to deal with the damage. And that's a shame. We assign meaning, a name, to a passing cloud. We can assign meaning and a name to it. Try to capture it with large net. But who is benefiting from that? For what? What's the point? Why not just keep it open? Why not just automatically, instead of automatically assume that we know, why not just keep it open and not know? And then deal with things as they come. Not knowing where they come from, not knowing where they go. It was last two weeks ago. Um, I got this text. I was here uh, in Tokusan. I got this text from downstairs in the office that they want me to come down because they are missing two checks of rent from last year. I'm saying that I did not pay, that we did not pay for two months of rent. So I finished up what I need to finish and I went downstairs and 
I asked, you know, which section, which months are you talking about? And they referred to two specific months. And because these days so easy, everything's available. So I open up the phone and I go to the bank website and I find those checks and I have copies and I show here are those checks. I said, well, no, we actually, maybe the other different months. And then I said, well, let me look. So I look and I find here. So then they came down to, came down to missing one check which I found the image of. So they looked further and they found out that the check actually was deposited into a different account. At the end of the day, everybody was right. They were right, I was right. It's a very interesting process because in that process, a lot can arise. Self-righteousness, I did my thing, you know, I know I paid all checks, I'm impeccable. How can they blame me? Who do they think they are? On my end, and I know on their end, there's all kinds of other assumptions and nonsense that can arise, creating lots of unnecessary stupidity, negativity. But none of it happened. It was just, well, let's look, let's verify. Thank you very much. Move on. That's it. The option to create bullshit is always available. We always can make something out of nothing. Always. And also strengthen a sense of self, whether it's a great sense of self or a diminished sense of self. It doesn't matter. Because obviously, I can build up a low self-esteem in the same way that I build up a, the greatest that I am. I can verify that further if I think that I am getting verification for that. Here, they're blaming me again. I know I can't get anything right. And this is happening. There's no way to stop those things, those thoughts from coming up. It's just that, why do we care so much? Well, why do we take it so seriously? And why do we believe that what we think actually means something or signifies something? Why do we believe? So in this koan today, Zen Traveler Liang is visiting Master Qin, Qin Shan. And he poses a question to him. He comes with a question. How is it when a single arrowhead smashes three barriers? Now the commentary is about the three barriers. Barrier. Some say it is taken from expedient means put out by ancient masters to awaken their disciples. This is an example of Tosotsu's three barriers when he asked his monks to pass through three questions. First one, where, first one is, where is your true nature right now? Then, how do you free yourself from life and death when you're just about to die? And the third one is, after you die, where will you go? This is a koan from the Gator's Gate collection. There's also Joshua's three turning words to help us penetrate. 
And he said, a gold Buddha does not pass through a furnace. A wood Buddha does not pass through a fire. A mud Buddha does not pass through water. <clears throat> but in reference to this one, Tenke's commentary says that it is taken from a Taoist tradition which sees the three barriers as eyes, ears, and mouth, which I think is very relevant to how we get trapped, how we trap ourselves. There's also the military example of the side battle formation, outside battle formation, and middle battle formation. And it seems as if Liang is using uh, this metaphor to express his understanding and to pose the question, smashing through all formations, through all barriers, whatever the barriers are, with one single arrow. Obviously, he's pointing at his own ability to cut through, through obstacles. Three, five, millions. And when you cut through, it really doesn't matter because there are no obstacles, right? So the number is not that relevant. So Chinshan is not very impressed with this uh, question or with this statement. And he says, bring, bring out the Lord within the barriers for me to see. You say you can shoot an arrow. Who? is the one who is shooting the arrow. You speak of excellent level of mastery. Show me the master. Bring him out. Right now. When Liang said, well then, I'm at fault. I must change. He says, okay, I realize my error and agree to adapt. And I think this is a much greater statement then the question he came up with, the question he came with, right? To be able to admit, all right, I'm at fault, I made a mistake. And I'm willing to recognize it. I'm willing to change on the spot. I'm not going to sit here and explain why I said what I said and why do I think I know what I know and prove it to you. I'm not going to waste time. Right, so immediately letting go. This by itself is, or could be, stepping into uncharted territories without dragging the baggage of the old self, the one who thinks he or she knows. So, Chinjan realizes the opportunity. This guy knows something. He has some level of depth. So he's demanding of Liang to seize the moment, take charge. So he says, why wait any longer? You say you understand that you are at fault. Fine, good. How about right now? Forget that fault. Right now, can you do it? So Yang says, a well-shot arrow doesn't hit anywhere. Which is actually true. We have that, uh, one of the koans, 
And miscellaneous quantities, we have this uh, line. Which is true, but is it true for him? So he said that and he started to leave. Now it's worth noting that Qin Shan was a Dharma heir to Dong Shan, the founder of Soto School, right? The school we are part of. And Yang was a disciple of Rinza School. And in most commentaries about this case, most commentaries viewed Qin Shan as the one who is on top in this Dharma encounter. But it's interesting that Ha Kuin, maybe a couple other masters, uh, of course, Hakuin was a Rinzai teacher, praised Niang as the sharp one. And Yamada Kuhn commented on, on Hakuin's analysis, saying, Love is blind. Which is a very interesting way to uh, comment on that. Love is blind, so he's unable to see. That's not saying anything negative about Hakuin, it's just that maybe it's saying we all can get trapped by what we think we represent. The important point to appreciate is that they both are showing an excellent ability to move with the changes. So they both move with each other. And they both also use this dialogue to deepen their understanding. It's important to also remember that when we read about or listen to Taishos and how the, these masters communicated with each other for the purpose of sharpening their souls. So the young started to walk away and Shan said, come here for a minute. Niang turned his head. Shan held him tight and said, leaving aside for the moment the single arrow smashing three barriers, let me see you shoot an arrow right now. Another opportunity. Yang hesitated, so Shan hit him seven times and said, I'll allow for this fellow, as this fellow will be doubting for 30 more years. Qin Shan once, a different incident, said to a monk, if you enter a battle without courage, you lose confidence at the first engagement. If you step, if you take a step in life without courage, without courage, you will lose the confidence right away. It's a great statement, isn't it? Great teaching. The verse says, I bring out the load within the barriers for you. You disciples, who would shoot an arrow, don't be careless. Take an eye and the ears go deaf. Let go of an ear and the eyes both go blind. There's only one road. Only one road. Advance and you fall into a pit, it says, retreat. And a ferocious tiger will bite your leg. The Sultani Roshi commented on that, who's a teacher in our lineage, said, 
It is the truly blind, the truly deaf, who is the master within the barrier. The master within the barriers has neither eyes nor ears. But he uses eyes and ears to see and hear with complete freedom. No matter how wondrous the things you show him or her, no matter how terrible things you show him or her, she does not see them at all. She's not bothered by that. No matter what obtruse philosophy you may expound, no matter what unusual doctrine you may, you may preach to him or her, she doesn't hear a word. And there's no word of negation either. In the hearing, merely hearing. In the speaking, merely speaking. There's no one there to negate. There's no one there to hold or let go. To go along or go against. The only way to truly see is to forget the eye when seeing. And the only way to truly hear is to forget the ear when hearing. When we function this way, the master within the barriers is brought to life and cuts through the automatic process of interpretations. Now we talk a lot about the great trust great determination. But we also have to remember the third pillar of Zen, the great doubt. And to keep that alive while we interact with everyday challenges. I don't know. To doubt. I think I know. But I'm not sure. I think I know what I'm looking at. But maybe, maybe there's a possibility, right? Maybe it's just an assumption. I believe I understand clearly what I'm hearing. But do I? Just to bring that question up. I have a fluctuating sense of self-worth. Sometimes feeling great about who I think I am, and other times feeling lousy about it. But do these feelings really have any significant meaning? Maybe we should try for a while just to put a big maybe after each statement that we think we are sure about. At the end of that, in parentheses, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I don't know what I'm Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe, just maybe. And it's challenging, of course, at first, because we derive our sense of identity, stability, security from a belief that we know what we are hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, thinking. We know it to be true and to be fixed. And so much of how we see ourselves and see others is based on 
that belief, that notion. And so to add a maybe to these interpretations and assumptions would mean to, to mess with our fragile identity, to mess with who we think we are. It also means to break through and open up our wings and soar, fly freely. There is that too. To not be chained by what we think. To not be chained by what we believe to be true. It says, the Lord within the barrier, the primordial ancestor of mind. She cries, she laughs, she experiences the entire gamut of life as human beings. Who is that? Who is she? Who is him? What is there a part of experiences? To offer a poem to finish with. <clears throat> From a cry at the first gulp of air to the piercing silence at sunset. Season after season, the meandering journey unfolds while the shades of my old shack move with the wind, revealing, then hiding, as if to tantalize. And all along, all along, it is patiently witnessing without a shadow, intimately supporting the wise and the fool, and quietly whispering, do not wait for another. Do not lament in the mud. There is no other time. Draw the ancient sword and cut through in one blow.